Hello and welcome to the Manage Self Lead Others podcast, mainly for experienced and aspiring people managers. I'm your host, Nina Sunday. This is the show to help you explore ways to become the best version of yourself at work as a manager. Each episode, you'll hear from some of the brightest business minds on the planet who share your passion to elevate and transform team culture. They share insights in self-leadership and leading others. Together, we can make workplace culture better. Are you ready? Because it's time to manage self, lead others. My guest today is futurist Rod Collins, host of the podcast Thinking Differently on C-Suite Radio Network, exploring how technological innovations transform the rules for how businesses succeed. Rod's books include Wiki Management, highlighting tools and practices of a revolutionary new management model, and Leadership in a Wiki World, which illustrates how leaders can leverage the power of collective intelligence to sustain extraordinary performance in rapidly changing markets. Rod presents on how emerging technologies such as blockchain, the Internet of Things and artificial intelligence will dramatically transform business, products and operating models. I'm looking to discuss today all this plus Rod's views on leading leaders. Let's listen in on my conversation with Rod Collins. And you you do your own podcast too. I do, I do. And it, it's, a, it's primarily a topical podcast. I've done so much writing that... Uh, uh, I do 20-minute podcasts on, on stuff that I've written in over the last uh, 10 years or so. Yeah. And, but it's also on, on innovation and futurism and, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and I'm take, I take a seasons approach. So the first season, I focused on digital transformation. And then the second season, I focused on collective intelligence. And uh, uh, digital transformation I think most people see it as a technological revolution, which I think it is, but I think it's even more so a sociological, a socioeconomic revolution, because what the digital revolution has done, it's made it practical to to set up peer-to-peer organizations. Uh, And although they've been around in, in real life, if you will, for a while, uh, they've not been very popular. They've just been in some niche spaces. But if you look at a thing like Google or Wikipedia, uh, those are all network type structures. And the thing about networks is they, they're vehicles that can leverage collective intelligence. And, and by that, you mean the company's uh, internal structure with their, uh, the, the team members? That well, that's one dimension of it, but I yeah. also think it can affect business and product models. So take Google. Yeah. Google's fundamental product model. I mean, what made them different, uh, and I think they did it more so in the original search engine than it is today, is they leveraged the collective intelligence of the users to rank the pages. Uh, I think today, I think to some extent, Google has devolved a little bit, and I think it's become a little bit more of a hierarchical structure. And so they are adjusting their algorithms to, uh, you know, one of the differences between networks and hierarchies, hierarchies leverage the intelligence of the elite few and uh, true networks leverage the collective intelligence of the many. 
I think Google started out as a true network, but I think it's kind of morphing more into a centralized hierarchy. But maybe someday it'll go back. And what we're seeing is a bit of the clash of the generations in that the former senior leaders who might be uh, baby boomers or Gen X, they tend to have more of this hierarchical preference, whereas the new cohorts coming through, being millennials, Gen Y, Gen Z, uh, they want a more flat structure a more uh, and more collaborative environment. And is that what you're seeing, Rod? Uh, yes, but I've been a bit disappointed. I mean, that was my observation about 10 years ago. Let, let's take Google, for example. Yeah. I mean, Google's search engine, you know, just leveraged the collective intelligence of the users that ranked the pages. I think when Sergey Brin and, and, and uh, Larry Page were at the helm of Google, uh, they brought in what was referred to as the hacker mentality. Information should be free. Uh, but something has happened over the last uh, two to three years. There is new leadership at Google. I don't know if that's coincidental or not. But Google has morphed into the most centralized corporation the world has ever seen. And uh, they have introduced a level of censorship that, uh, that we certainly have never seen before in the United States. And I have to say that I'm surprised. Um, and so uh, there was a book written uh, at the beginning of the digital revolution. Eric Raymond wrote a book called The, the Bazaar in the Cathedral. And he said that the old way of organizing centralized, top-down hierarchies, traditional structures, well, they, you know, uh, they built cathedrals and that this new way of organizing is more like a bazaar. It's a little bit messier, but it's faster and, it, and it's more collegial. Um, I, I think we've lost a little bit of that. Uh, I hope we don't lose more, but uh, I'm not terribly pessimistic because I think we're, uh, we're in between the first wave and the second wave of the digital revolution. And I think in the second wave, we're going to uh, we're going to get back to building true networks. We're going to get back to leveraging collective intelligence. I think there'll be a whole new generation of uh, or a new big tech, if you will. And I think people will be careful to build it, for example, on blockchain platforms. In other words, they'll be designed so that they are distributed, that nobody can centralize it. Um, and and I'm, I'm beginning to see, uh, uh, if I could just go on, on an aside for a moment, uh, one of the things I think we're seeing in what I, what I would call the devolving of, of these uh, once promising companies is it's the old Lord Acton quote that says, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, I think as we go forward, we need to take a look at how we exercise power. And I would modify Lord Acton's quote to say that coercive power corrupts and coercive power corrupts absolutely. And what has happened is these large platforms have become very, very coercive, whereas once they were collegial. I think there's another dimension of power. It's not one that we have much experience with, but I think it's the opportunity we have as humanity and I, I think it's a big choice we're going to have over the next decade or two. Will we build our social structures on foundations of collaborative power? And I think collaborative power is not corrupt. It's fundamentally altruistic. 
Well, the whole has... is greater than the sum of its parts. And exactly. so what you're doing is you're you're taking the 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 group mind, all the people working in an organization, if you're t- taking on board their suggestions, well then you're going to have more elegant solutions to problem solving. Would that be right? I think that's part of it. Yes. And and I my first experience with collaborative power uh, happened about 20 years ago uh, when I was an executive with the Blue Cross Blue Shield Federal Employee Program in the United States. And it's a health insurance program that provides insurance to all the federal employees. It was about 4 million people. And it was, uh, at, when the time I left it, it was a $19 billion business in terms of U.S. dollars. Um, and uh, in in this structure, we had 39 independent corporations who were in a business alliance to deliver a seamless product. And in the mid-1990s, I was asked to lead the operations and to turn the business around. And we couldn't reach agreement or closure very, very easily. Uh, we, we, We had great difficulties getting the 39 companies to align. And so when I was asked to do that, um, I sat back and said, you know, for years, we've been leading this business like it's a, a, a regular business, top-down hierarchy. We give directives that we were located in Washington, D.C., which is where the, the home office is, if you will. And I thought, you know, we're really leading a network, not a hierarchy. So we have to learn how to lead a network. And, and there's nothing out there on how to do that. So we were a bit of pathfinders. But one of the things we did, it was a very important discipline, is we developed a meeting format, which is now known as the Collective Intelligence Workshop. And what we did is we got a microcosm of the business in the room in the presence of about 40 or 50 people. We did something that's normally not done. We got all different levels in the same meeting and people from all different areas. And uh, we really focused on all dimensions of diversity, not just the usual demographics, but but you know, we, we, we were looking at business diversity, we were looking at different ways of thinking, but we wanted enough people in the room. So if anybody had an objection, they would be able to speak it. So how many people were in the room? Like I'm thinking 50 people? 40 to 50 people is right. what you need, okay? Right. And, and the, 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 what we did in setting these meetings up, we set them up for two days and we said, we're not gonna have any debate. Because debate wasn't working for us. I mean, literally for two decades, we couldn't reach closure on a lot of key items. So uh, we use facilitative techniques, put people in round tables. We had disciplines like clarifying questions where if, if a presentation was mean, made, you couldn't object or disagree. All you could do is ask clarifying questions. And what we wanted to get people to do is we need to start listening to each other before we go down paths of different ways of thinking. And um, uh, and then we had other techniques during the course of the, of the meeting in which we could converge the thinking in ways that work. Well, it was immensely successful. Within two days, we were able to accomplish what we hadn't done in two decades. We had 50 people unanimously agreeing to a course of action. And we were astounded. And what we discovered was the incredible power of collective intelligence. And we never get there without usual debates. 
And, and also the, reason- the power of the art of asking good questions. Exactly. The focus is on the questions. In a debate, the focus is on answers. So if you and I are in a debate, what's going to happen is you sit there and you're convinced you have the right answer and you have data to back it up. And I'm convinced I have the right answer and I got data to back it up. And what we do is wind up talking past each other. I never take any time to truly listen to you because I'm already convinced you're wrong. And I listen to disagree, not to understand. And you do the same. Mm -hmm. So what happens in debates is you achieve when they're successful. The best you usually do is what's called a compromise or a least common denominator solution. Well, one of the exercises that we would do in these collective intelligence workshops is we would we would process ideas in small group tables. And that was important because when the ideas were presented, you didn't know who the individual author was instead of the vice president's idea. It's table one's idea. And what's an example of an idea they'd be debating, Rod? Oh, we might ask them, what are the uh, three or four most important things we have to do to improve improve a business process? Fine. Okay. Yeah. And something like this is good for, and and so uh, those ideas would, so you got these flip charts with about five ideas on them. Maybe they come from five different groups, six different groups. You got 25, 30 ideas on the wall. And we would have this discussion. I would say to them, point out two items that look like they are the same and let's talk about them. And if they are the same, we're going to keep one and discard the other. But if they're not the same, we're going to refine the language so we understand the differences. So here's the difference between a normal debate and what we did here. We were talking about ideas that were similar. And the only way that you could say whether they were the same or not was you had to understand each idea. So everybody is understanding every idea that was on the flip charts, whereas in a debate, we, we're talking about how is my idea better than your idea, whereas in this facilitated session, the focus was how is this idea different from that idea? And what we wound up doing is we were enhancing everybody's understanding because you had a visit with every idea, not from the point of whether I agree or disagree, but from the point of view, do I understand it enough to know the distinction between these two ideas or not? And then at the end of that, we would wind up, you know, we condensed the list maybe down to about from 30 items to about 15 to 18. And then we would pass out stick on dots and we would tell people, vote them any way you want. You can put four items on one item or you can spread them out, do whatever you want to do. And uh, out of that exercise would usually come 90% of the time, it's a top four items. And I'd look at the group and say, if we do these four things, will it make this business process better? And and everybody would look and go, yeah, those are the right things. And when I would look at the list, I'd say, isn't that interesting? Item A was important to one political faction. Item B, which appeared to be contrary, was important to another political faction. And items three and four, or C and D, if you will, they were the glue that made the whole set work So apparently contradictory ideas could be part of a total solution of four ideas, which is how we accomplish unanimous agreement. So when I say to you that collective intelligence or collaborative, now that collective intelligence, I think using that, uh, what what we did in in these meetings was we were 
accelerating what I would call collaborative power. So now you got 50 people leaving the room. They all agree on this. It's not been directed. They own it. And what was amazing is it magnified outside the room because this was such a high level solution that when people heard it, who weren't even in the meeting, their reaction would be, oh, that's very well thought out. And they get behind it. And so this is what I mean. If you can leverage collective intelligence, if you tap into collaboration power, it is inherently altruistic. And so there was no need for coercion because you've, you've listened to all the voices and we blended them. Um, and so if we can learn how to do that on a large scale, then, uh, you know, then we'll be leveraging our, our collective intelligence. We will be, we will be, tapping into collaborative power, and I think creating a more humane society. A part of this great resignation is, uh, and tell me your opinion on this, that uh, organisations are saying, well, you have to come back to the office. You can't have hybrid working, working from home, you know. So is that is that part of it? Uh, organisations are saying, well, as an employee, you have to follow our uh, our rules, and these are our rules now that we're coming out of COVID. I, and, you know, if you think about it, organizations have been like that since uh, since they really came in vogue in the late 19th, early 20th century. Frederick Taylor did not have a high opinion of human nature, uh, and he is the father of scientific management, uh, which began in the United States and went over the world. It's probably the it's probably the most influential export the United States has ever had. And what we take for granted is, as management, command and control structures, uh, goes back to Frederick Taylor. But what that is, it's a coercive power structure where the few at the top have the power, and we even call it command and control. Now, I think, and and this is uh, this is the topic. <clears throat> excuse me. This will be the topic of of the book I'm working on now, which I'm calling. Um, the intelligent organization, I think that that uh, business management, in order to keep up with the rapid pace of change, has got to step away from traditional centralized command and control management because it's too slow and it's not intelligent enough because it's leveraging the individual intelligence of a few people. Somewhere around 2004, Eric Teller, who was uh, head of Google's uh, R&D function, I, I believe that's the area he's in charge of, but he made this observation that somewhere around 2004, the ability for any single human being to process what's happening in the world in real time has been exceeded. In other words, none of us, no single person can do it. So the idea we build these structures, put a CEO up top, who is supposedly the smartest person, and we're gonna use that person's individual intelligence to make all the key decisions is dangerous because the world is moving faster than he or she will be able to process it. Now, if we build distributed peer-to-peer -peer networks and set up self-management structures, then we are more likely to keep up with the pace of change because self-managed networks are more likely to leverage the collective intelligence of everyone. And so let me compare and contrast the two models. The traditional model, okay, as we've talked about, it leverages the intelligence of the elite few 
It focuses on the right answers. That's why we have these elite few because they are so smart. And we get to the right answer quickly. Then we put in place a plan to execute that right answer. And then finally, we put in place procedures to assure the compliance of everyone. And the essential message is do what you're told. And so authoritative compliance is the endpoint of traditional management. In the new model, it's all very different. First of all, it's going to leverage the intelligence of everyone through collective structures. And so the unit of work is not the individual, it's the team. The focus is on the right questions. That's the most important thing. When things are changing, I need to be asking the right questions. That's what we need to be focused in on. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, strategy shifts from being about planning to being about discovery. Now that I got the right questions, I need to be involved in the discovery process. I need to learn. I need to see what emerges. I need to invest in serendipity, which is connecting unusual things, and which means I need to have everyone in the organization not focused on authoritative control, but to be focused on intelligent decision-making, because that's what teams do. And so teams in a self-managed structure don't have supervisors. The team manages itself. The team decides its decision rights. The team may decide that one person is going to make the decision because they feel that's the smartest person for a particular item. But in another instance, the team may decide a majority opinion will do. Another time they say, they may say we must have a unanimous decision, but they're responsible for their own decision rights and they have enough information to make these decisions. And so a lot of modern companies, companies like Amazon and Netflix uh, are using these processes. Uh, In Amazon, they even distinguish between what they call type one and type two decisions. Type one can sink the firm. Only the leadership team can make those. Every other team in the organization can make type two decisions. Type one decisions, if you make a mistake, you're dead. Type two decisions, if you make a mistake, it's an opportunity for learning. And if we're not making mistakes, we're not moving fast enough. And so that's another thing about this uh, self-managed organization. They expect that there will be failures here and there. What they don't want is big failures. So with a self-managed organization, it takes a certain intentional leadership to lead that because you know, you've got you've got the team, but also you do have leaders that are part of that, that ultimately would have the capacity to contribute and even veto an idea if they think it's going to sink the ship? Yeah, if it's a type one decision, for sure. If it's a type two, they don't veto it. Well, who decides whether it's a type one or type two? What if the team says it's a type two and the, the leader says, well, I think it's a type one? They have I the power of veto? The leaders get to decide what the type yeah. ones are, so, but certainly so they're going to be in dialogue with everybody else. So. And and it, you can't just be laissez-faire, leave the team alone. You you do have to what um, have a have a benevolent overseeing approach. 
Actually not. <laughs> and and here's the here's the amazing thing. When I speak on this, I point out to people, do you know that there has there is a company on this planet? It's a $3 billion enterprise. It has 10,000 people. It's in 30 countries around the world. It has made a profit and every year it's marketed its products and it has no supervisors and never has. All work is, is, uh, uh, is agreed to. There are no assignments. The CEO is there for external reasons, but has no authority to give any orders to anyone. And it blows people's minds. And it I'm is, trying to think who it could possibly be. Do we play 20 questions? <laughs> no, I'll tell It is W.L. Gore and Associates, the makers of Gore-Tex. Right. And, and if you're, if you play guitar, Alexa guitar strings. And they, right. and, and there's another company in uh, uh, it's in California. It's been around, I believe since the early nineties, it's a tomato processing company. It went from being a startup to the world's largest tomato processor it also has no bosses. It also has migrant workers for several uh, months a year, and everything is self-managed. Well, and, what inspired them to get on that uh, on that path? Well, we get back to the leadership, and this yeah. is critical. Um, the reason we continue command and control, which is a 19th century organization model in a 21st century role, is that our leaders cannot give up control. And control, if you think about it, is addictive. It's ego, um, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's it's not. It, it it's more than that. It, it's it is it is the need for control. It, mm-hmm. We have a we've been raised in a world in which we cannot imagine power being exercised without somebody being in charge. But here's the thing: the people with the need for control in their DNA are the ones that rise to leadership because if they're not like that, they stay as an individual contributor. All right. So here's, so here's an important, here's an important thing. Um, Jim, Jim Collins wrote a book, good to great. And a lot of people have read it. And, and, And if you've read it, you remember, he talks about the level five leader. Okay. And, uh, Collins didn't want to put, he didn't want to identify leadership as one of the aspects of good of great companies, it was his 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 staff who convinced him he had to do it because they pointed out it was the only characteristic that was common across all eleven of the good great companies. And finally, Collins agreed, and he said, "You know, that you know his staff was right." And and he delved into that, and and he came up with he described it. I, Collins is very succinct and I I think has very good language. He said they have humble will. They have humility, but they're very willful. These are not meek people. And, And he said, he also made the statement, most organizations anti select the very leaders they need, because what they're looking for is the the person who presents themselves as powerful, strong, know-it-all people. Well, the problem with that is, now this isn't Collins's language, this is my observation. I think that model uh, tends to bring in narcissists. And I'll tell you something, and, Ray Dalio talks about that because he talks about the fast talkers that override mm-hmm. the more the introvert, deep thinkers. And he actually, in his book, Principles, Life and Work, 
invites the 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 introverts who are deep thinkers to actually stop the fast talkers in a meeting with, I'm sorry, I might be a bit slow, but can you please explain and clarify what you're doing, what you're saying? So to it's it's up to the introverts who are deep thinkers to pull these fast talkers back. You know, it's like a, yeah. a stallion that's 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 <laughs> running wild. It's like you've you've got to actually have psychological safety and conversational equality. Exactly. So a, a couple of thoughts. Here. Let's talk about this introvert, extrovert, and then get back yeah. to the other thought. Yeah. One of the goals we had in mind when we designed the collective intelligence workshop was to make a safe place for introverts to be heard. Yes. And that happened by processing things in small groups. Introverts are more comfortable in small groups. They'll talk in groups of six, seven, eight. They don't like to talk in groups of 25. They don't like the town hall meeting. <laughs> no, no. And so this gets their voices out, okay? And oftentimes they have incredibly innovative, thoughtful ideas. And so this process I described earlier, get those ideas out. Now, I explained to you before how we would come up with this elegant set of about four items that everybody agrees if we do this, it's going to work. Now, when we reach this stage, because this is a safe meeting, the introverts are comfortable now talking in groups of 25 to 50 people because there's been a tone that is set that we're not debating anymore. Now, once the dynamic becomes, we're building on each other's ideas rather than pitting our ideas against each other, and then the, in, the introverts, they're very comfortable with that process. They like to build, all right? What they don't like is they don't like mean-spiritedness and they don't like or, or, or justify your opinion or, 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 you know, defend your, your, your point of view. It's like almost it's like the, the, the talking stick enables people to say their piece and yep. to be heard. Yep. And, and what happens to build off of what you just said is instead of, you know, you know, attacking an idea, the conversation after these exercises, what you hear is this phrase or not, I want to build on that idea. And then the next minute, oh, I want to build on that idea in this way. And, And what happens now, when you get a discussion where people are building on each other's ideas, that is what collaborative power looks like. When we're not building on each other's ideas and when we're in a position where we're going to say, my idea is better than yours. And if you don't give up, I'm just going to shut you down. Okay. That is an example of coercive power. We as human beings are capable of higher intelligence. And, and so getting back to leadership, leadership's important because the leaders of, of self-managed peer-to-peer networks have this humble will and they don't have this sense that they know all the answers. As a matter of fact, uh, as I led these processes, when I was inside Blue Cross Blue Shield, I had to go through a psychological shift because I had to change what my psychological payoffs were. It wasn't about my ideas being extended or amplified. As a matter of fact, when I would lead these sessions, I was the highest title in the room and the only person who couldn't express an opinion because I knew if I gave my opinion, everybody would say, 
Well, he's the chief executive. Oh. So we might also just go along because we're going to do that anyway. So even when asked, I wouldn't tell them because I would say my job is to help is to get the best of your ideas forward. And what I learned over the I've been doing these workshops now for about 25 years. And what I've learned over that time is I would never substitute my individual intelligence for the collective intelligence of a diverse group of people. Theirs is always smarter, always. Well, even Buckminster Buckminster Fuller talked about that. That's where he coined the term synergy, which is, you know, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And that's the mindset a leader has to have. And so a practical example that I think our listeners will be familiar with, Alan Mulally was this type of humble, willful leader. He goes into Ford. The board tells him he can fire anybody that he wants on the leadership team. He tells them, I don't think I'm going to need to do that. They say, well, we're losing billions of dollars a year. I mean, you know, feel free. Well, he didn't fire a single person on a leadership team. As I recall, two left on their own because they didn't like this style that he brought in. But he knew that the secret to turning the organization around is to build the leadership team into the most highly effective team in the company. And then that will leverage from there. One of the comments that I'll make when I speak on this, when I do keynote speaking, and this always gets gets knowing chuckles from the audience. I say the most dysfunctional team in the typical organization is the senior leadership team. They're not collaborative. They're competing with each other to be the next CEO. They withhold information. They will, they will work where, when it's to their benefit to put another person down. And they're not working for the company. They're working for their own area. So it will be the best so that that positions them to lead the company. Which it, The senior leadership team needs to be a team that is continually supporting each other, learning each other, discovering what the future is, especially in a fast-changing world, and constantly synergizing their strengths, which is exactly what Malali did. And a senior leadership team needs to be frequently meeting in what I would call high-quality time. Malali had his team meet once a week, every Thursday. When I led Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP, we had a strategic offsite meeting, not once a year, once every two weeks. We went offsite once every two weeks. I wanted to be offsite because I wanted us to focus on strategy. That's right. Not, not people knocking at the door saying, I've got a quick question. Right. <laughs> and I wanted us to be deeply thinking about our business. And, and, and I have to say that I had the privilege of working with an incredibly, incredibly talented team who really, really, um, you know, I mean, they were really supportive of, of building this strong leadership team. And as a group, there was just a tremendous amount of humble, humble willfulness among them. And, and, and so, and, and we wound up turning the business around in a very positive way. Well, you brought up the N-word before, narcissism. How do you weed out the narcissists that don't demonstrate humble will? That's the hard part um, because uh, if anybody's familiar with the psychological literature, uh, it's very hard to undo narcissism. And so what we really have to be doing is looking at future generations of leadership and changing our paradigm about what it looks like. Don't look for the in-charge person. Don't look for the show, the show person. Um, 
this is another uh, another picture Jim Collins paints that I really, really like. When things go wrong, they look in the mirror. When things go right, they look out the window. With the narcissist, when things go right, they look in the mirror. And when things go wrong, they look out the window. So if one is a chairman of a, of a board and you're selecting leaderships, or if you're a CEO looking for leaders, find some way to find out if things go wrong, is this particular person you're thinking of hiring, is that person going to look in the mirror? And if they do hire them, are they going to look out the window for who to blame? Because that's the most important. That's, that is probably the key characteristic to focus in on. Hire people who will look out the window when things go wrong because they're going to build incredible teams. They're going to build incredible morale. And they look in the mirror when things uh, go wrong. I hope I said that right. When things go right, they look out the window. When things go wrong, they look in the mirror. And, 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 th- and when that happens, people will really rally around them because, because they will, they want to come to the aid of that leader who's taken that responsibility. That's right. And high emotional intelligence says that went wrong. What was my behavior or what was my contribution to it going off track? Uh, how can I do it differently next time? So it's learning from mistakes. Whereas the people that don't learn from mistakes, just blame. It's outside yeah. of themselves. It also changes the meaning of accountability. And I think accountability is terribly misused. In most organizations, accountability means who is the single person I can blame when something goes wrong. That's not what accountability is because you can't do anything about it. Accountability is a proactive dynamic. And so what accountability is right, if things go off the rail, who do we need to get together to build the best team to get this train back on the tracks. That's what accountability is about. It's mm-hmm. not about looking who to blame. It's about looking who to bring together so that we can get things where they need to go. Accountability is also about being aware of leading indicators. Okay. I, I one of the things most most organizations focus on the wrong numbers. They focus on the numbers in the financial statements. Those are important to know whether you're winning or losing. They're also important to determine pay. And I don't disagree with that, but they're not management tools. Management tools are leading indicators that will let you know if if this train is going to go off the rail. So, you know, if your speed is too fast and you got a turn coming up, you want some type of maybe you want a signal going off. That's a leading indicator. Slow it down. okay? and so. It's the leading indicators you want to focus in on, because if you are managing those, then chances are you're not going to have bad outcomes. This is, I think, another discipline that uh, Mulally brought into Ford when he met with the, with with his staff. They did their metrics in colors, which I think is important to do. No numbers can kind of just be blasé, but when you walk in with something red or yellow or green. In our case, in Blue Cross Blue Shield, we we added the color blue to it. Blue, of course, was going to be the highest color. But red and yellow gets your attention. We need to get working on those. And you want to you want to measure your leading indicators, but you also want to color code them. And you want nice. to color code them. You want to color code them in a way the whole organization knows, because then you can leverage their collaborative power, their collective intelligence. Uh, if, if you came into our offices in Blue Cross Blue Shield 
any visitor would know how we were doing because we had our leaning indicators plastered all over the walls with color codes. Mm. And if anything was going yellow or red, you, you didn't have to call a meeting. The staff saw it and they would get working on it and get those numbers uh, turned around as fast as they could to get them either green or blue. That's you use the whole power of the team. So, so anybody listening to this could be a people manager, could be an individual contributor, could be a CEO or senior leader. So where does the change start depending on where you're at? So maybe the middle manager. How can the middle manager create a movement that will encourage this collective intelligence? I think the middle manager can bring this discipline to the group that they are with, okay? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, But certainly where it most needs to happen is at the senior leadership team level because they affect the culture of the organization. What you can do as a middle manager is affect the culture of your department, but you're still going to live within the culture of the organization. uh, And if you want to change culture, don't go off and have a three-day offsite where we're going to bring in outside people and we're going to work on agreements and we're all going to sign pieces of paper and then go back to the office to the same system we had before, because that'll last about two or three weeks. If you want to change the culture, change the system. Because if you put in a, a, a peer-to-peer network, if you uh, put in ideas like type one, type two decisions, if you set up teams, give decision rights to teams, let them know the space within that they can work and trust them to make those decisions, they will surprise you in a very, very positive way. And if you do that, you're going to have an incredibly accountable culture that is going to please your customers because people are smart and they will step up. And that was my experience. Um, if it's what it's this system of, of, of teams of teams as general McChrystal called them. If you put that in place, then uh, you're going to have a benevolent culture. If you're tapping into collaborative power, it tends to be more altruistic. It's not corruptive. And if you're tapping into collective intelligence, you're moving at, the, at you're moving intelligently at the pace of change. A company that does this very well is Netflix. Look at Netflix. Tell us about they that. could they they did what Blockbuster couldn't. Blockbuster couldn't transform itself. Netflix started out sending DVDs to your home. Then they moved to streaming. Then they started uh, uh, making movies. Okay, and so they keep innovating and they're able to adjust their business and product models. And so that is, that's what companies have to do today. You can't get stuck in one business or product model. You have to keep evolving. You have to keep adapting. And how would we perhaps even read about what the Netflix culture, internal culture is? I mean, uh, to to be inspired to take fresh action, we need to maybe read about the role models and say, well, let's try this, let's try that. You've you've defi- defined a very interesting facilitated process with a group of yes. 50 people before. But right. how would we find out about these companies that are, uh, you know, Gore-Tex and uh, Netflix? How do we find out what their uh, trade secrets are in terms of how they organise their culture? There's certainly, there's certainly there's a book on Netflix that I think uh, 
its its uh, founder wrote, uh, Reed Hastings. Um, there's you can read Humanocracy by Gary Hamill and uh, and uh, uh, Michelle Zanini. Uh, I've written a book on this space. I, it's called Wiki Management. Manager, yes. Um, and uh, and you're writing uh, well, the new book. When will that come out? Right? That will probably come out in in 2022. And, yeah. Uh, that yeah that will be called the the uh, the intelligent organization. Well, I can't wait uh, to invite you back to talk about your new book when it comes out. <laughs> oh, oh, I look forward to the opportunity. Look, um, it's it's so wonderful sharing these ideas. I think um, it's so inspirational. In fact, I think podcasting is the new reading because you know we can we can listen to a podcast while we're driving or commuting uh, from place to place. Just put the 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 earphone the earphones in. But um, so you've really given us some food for thought today, Rod. I really appreciate your contribution. It's wonderful. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being here. Thank you so much. And I look forward to a future conversation again. All the best. Thank you so much, Nina. This episode, we've been speaking with Rod Collins on the Manage Self, Lead Others podcast for experienced and aspiring people managers. I'm your host, Nina Sunday. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Uh, People tell me that uh, they've listened to this program because someone told them it's a good show to listen to. And we come back every week. We interview people who share insights on how to elevate and transform team culture. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time, ciao for now. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.